The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be God, my Savior. He is the God who avenges me, who subdues nations under me, who saves me from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From a violent man you rescued me. Therefore I will praise you. Lord, among the nations I will sing praises to your name. He gives the king great victory. He shows unfailing love to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's all been the word of the Lord this morning. It's just been kind of a neat banquet to walk through Psalm 18. For those of you guys who were wondering how we were going to approach this as we, maybe you were reading it this week, you know it's a very long psalm. And so I'm so grateful for the band uh, to find those songs that just kind of capture this perfectly as we've walked through this a section at a time. Uh, needless to say, I'm not going to be able to cover the, the entirety of, the, of what I'd love to cover. There, I probably won't get to your favorite verse in Psalm, uh, Psalm 18 this morning in the 20-something minutes that we have together, but uh, I do want to pull out three what I think are major themes from this passage, and uh, I think that these are things that we can apply and take with us. I think these are things that encourage and exhort us, and uh, let's ask the Lord to do that right now as we pray. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we commit to you this time that you would use uh, all the means at your disposal to get our attention and, and direct our hearts and, and give us specifically what we need for the battles that we face, that we would have um, the encouragement that we need, the exhortation we need, the, the challenge that we need, the admonishment that we need as we uh, take the attitudes that we have and face our foe. And so we pray, Lord, that you would accomplish these things on that intimate and personal level that only your spirit can do. Not my words, but your words. Not my thoughts, but your thoughts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, before we get to what I would say are some of the major themes of Psalm 18, I feel like I need to confess to you a, a mildly awkward uh, and embarrassing association that I have with this psalm. I know that some of you, you know, there's certain uh, passages of Scripture that we associate with certain times in our lives or certain moments in our lives. And for me, uh, I associate Psalm 18 with, with a hike that I did. Um, this was younger years. Um, this was single years. And uh, I went up to New England and did a solo trip where I hiked, among other things, Mount Katahdin. Uh, that's Mount Katahdin there. It's the highest point in Maine. And um, I could spend the next 30 minutes just talking about Katahdin, which I won't do. So I'm going to fast forward to, I want you to imagine it's day two, and I'm on the summit, which is that high point on the, the right side. That's called Baxter Peak. And um, uh, I have just opened my pack and taken out my Bible and some beef jerky. And uh, now join me on the, on the summit as I ponder Psalm 18. And I'm reading this, and... Um, there are some verses in here that are really kind of coming alive based on the, the, where I am and what I'm, what I'm doing. And, and uh, one of them is uh, verse 33. It says, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights, which I'm standing on the heights. That's a pretty cool verse, right? And then let's skip to verse 36. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. Now, this verse suddenly became like this promise that I felt like I needed to kind of grab a hold of because the best part of hiking Katahdin is not getting up to Baxter Peak, which I approached from the right of the picture there. It's then what happens when you go from that left. That next mile of trail is called the knife edge. It's been called the best mile of hiking east of the Rockies. And to describe it to you without exaggeration, uh, it's about four feet wide, just boulders, and there's 2,000 foot drops on both sides. And it's about a mile of that. Uh, there's no way, I mean, you just tie your shoelaces before you do this, you know, there's just no way you trip and this comes out well for you. So, so uh, I, it took me two hours to, to hike that, taking with me this promise, which I was most definitely claiming from verse 36 of Psalm 18, right? And um, uh, two hours, most of it was probably me stopping and taking pictures, but you also, you do take this thing really 
You don't take this fast, right? You're very cautious, and eventually you get to this thing called the chimney, which is that little notch there. I don't know if you can see it, but it looks small there, but I want to show you what it actually looks like. That's the notch. Now, you're, you're going up over this ridge, and you go up over that. I don't know why they do this, but you go up over that, and then you go down the other side. And um, suddenly this turned from hiking to rock climbing, and I wasn't prepared for that. And um, it's not, um, maybe it was, uh, there's a spot where there's a, a face of rock that I'm having to climb, and, and um, maybe I'm about six foot off the trail, but then remember there's like 2,000 feet below that, right? So, so you're hanging, you're looking down, and um, uh, I couldn't find the next hold. I just couldn't figure out where I was going to, how I was going to get up over this ledge. And when you look down, that's a bad, that was just a bad idea. And so... I will just confess to you that one of, my leg just started kind of shaking uncontrollably, you know, which sometimes happens when you're a little... And um, that's not a good thing either when you're hanging on a rock and you're... Uh, anyway, um, so suddenly verse 29 came to mind. And um, nobody else heard me say this, I don't think. And nobody else was around and uh, nobody witnessed this. But I yelled this Psalm 29... Sorry, verse 29 battle cry, which says, With my God I can scale... A wall, and I went up over, and I, I made it up over the top of it. So uh, that's when I think of this verse. I think of me being silly. The silliest part of it was that once I got to the top and feeling pretty smug about myself, you know, that I've made it this, this far, uh, I looked, and there, there's blue blazes that mark the trail, and there was this really casual trail that kind of went around that knob and kind of easily up the other side. I didn't even have to go up this. this I didn't have to do this. So uh, nobody saw me do this. Nobody heard my cry. I don't know why I'm sharing it with you guys now, because uh, it's just embarrassing. But um, the reason I mainly share it with you is, is that um, uh, Psalm 18, while it is not a, a psalm for summoning hiking superpowers, it, is, um, it exudes a confidence that is grounded in the Lord's might. And it's grounded in, it's, it's fitting for any obstacle that you have in your path, perceived or real. What we have here is David writing towards the end of his life. We know that because it says that, the beginning of the psalm. Um, it also, we know that because it's, 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 right, it's dropped right into the narrative as you're reading through First and Second Samuel. This is lifted word for, almost word for word from Second Samuel 22. And there it is right there too. At the end of when David has, has achieved a victory from all of his enemies, uh, that's what's happening in that moment. Um, he's... Um, this, he sings this song. He, this, this song is dropped into it. Um, so he's at the summit of his life, and he's looking down. He can see everything from that point. He's got a perfect vantage point of all the things that the Lord has done and all the challenges that the Lord has shown up for. He can see it all from here. He's found a piece from, from his st struggle with Saul, which if you're reading through the Bible, you see that starts in like, you can read it. It's 1 Samuel 18 through about 31. You can read the story there. It's long to read. It's, imagine how much longer it was to to actually live through that, about six years of constant threat of death and, and all of that. But then it says not only that this is an achievement of his um, victory over Saul, but it's, it says, and all of his other enemies, right, and Saul. And so when you keep reading after um, the Saul saga, you find that he had plenty of other, he had a life of conflict. I'm going to name just a few, the, uh, Abner, Ishbosheth. The Jebusites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Aramaeans, the Philistines, eventually his, his son Absalom. And he gets to the end of all that, blood on his hands, and he writes this psalm. End of his life, pretty much. There's a little bit that still happens, but mo this is towards the end. He's looking back on the whole thing. He's tracing the paths that he's been on and the walls that he's 
scaled. Let me, so that you can put this into your own context, let me ask you this question. What battles have you had to fight in your life and where have you seen the Lord show up? And I know that some of you are in, you're fighting battles right, like you're right in the middle of one right now. But what I, what I want to ask you to, to imagine is not a, a current event, but something in the past, something that has a, a, a story arc to it and it's a closed chapter. It's a, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. You're able to look back on it with, uh, with perspective and hindsight and you're able to see what the Lord did. Right? So with that in mind, uh, the reason I ask you to focus there is because you can imagine that if you were to write a song about that moment now, it would sound a lot different than the song that you would have written when you were in it. Agreed? There might be more wisdom in it. There, there might be more, more trust. There would definitely be more ability to see the bigger picture. You, some of the emotions of the moment might be more tempered and, and more balanced now. You'd be able to see God's hand in it in a way that you didn't see God's hand in it when you were in it, right? There would be life lessons that have maybe evolved as you have reflected on these things. Guys, what's so beautiful is that's the David that you get here in Psalm 18, a seasoned confidence, a wider perspective, a sense of where it all fits in the story. We have looked at psalms that were honest to God in the moment of the storm, but this is one that is honest to God in the sober reflection of time. And now with that in mind, let me suggest three themes from this psalm. Looking back at the battle, David teaches us at least three things. First of all, that God's holiness is worth every ounce of our attention Second, that our righteousness is worth every ounce of our effort. And third, that our battle is equipped every minute of our lives. So hang with me. I'll explain to you what I mean by these three things. Um, first, God's holiness is worth every ounce of our attention. You, you get it right from the very beginning of the psalm. It says, I love you, Lord. By the way, the, the Hebrew there for love is just this very intimate. It's a, it's a unique term and it's very intimate. It's, I love you, Lord. My, and then look at the words, my, my strength, my, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my rock. Again, by the way, it's a different Hebrew word for rock. It's a different rock. Refuge, shield, horn of my salvation, my stronghold. One author calls this an explosion of metaphors. You've seen, we've seen some of these as we've worked through the Psalms. We've seen some of these images already, but there's plenty of other images that have yet to be shown, but they're all very common in the Psalms, and yet in Psalm 18, in just a couple of verses, you get all of them. It's all packed in there densely. What really gets our attention, I think, though, is what starts around verse 7 when God shows up on the battlefield and it says that the earth trembled and quaked and the foundations of the mountains shook and trembled because he was angry. And then we read a bunch of imagery through like verse 15 that's smoke and fire and burning coals and dark clouds and hailstones and lightning and thunder and the foundations of the earth laid bare. You're meant to feel the might of all of it. Guys, we sing songs like, show me your glory, or I want to see your face, or I just want to be close to your side, right? And they're great songs, but I just want to make sure that we know what we're asking when we say those things, right? Do you know what you're asking when you ask for those things? Jesus has made God approachable to us, but we cannot forget who we're talking to. If we walked out here this morning and we, God manifested himself and he were as big as one of those trees, you'd be tempted to bow down and worship. If he were as big as a tornado, you'd be on your face. But he is above all of that. Those things are a trillionth the size of who our God is. 
You've felt that this week probably as you've been watching these evening storms come in or afternoon storm like yesterday, you kind of look up north towards Huntersville and you go, oh, here it comes, right? See that dark, those dark foreboding clouds, you see that, that, that curtain of rain coming. I don't know how it keeps missing our vegetable garden, but it keeps missing it, so. But, but you see it coming, you go, uh-oh, here it comes, right? And yet God is so far above that, above that storm. And the best thing that David can do here in his poetry is to grab a hold of the mightiest, strongest, most powerful images that he can think of and put them into this place and say in poem, Lord, you're kind of like that. Author Gerald Wilson, he says, something essential is lost when we never experience the shock of God's holy presence. God is, of course, a friend who loves and comforts us, but he is also the holy God who knocks our socks off and shakes us to our very foundations. We need to experience God as both if we are to keep our faith in the right perspective. We should occasionally feel the words that the band just sang up here. I'm overwhelmed. Uh, The lyric on that said, I hear the sound of your voice all at once. It's a gentle and thundering noise. All that you are is so overwhelming, to just be undone by God. I think sometimes we are tempted in a Christian concert to yell, woo, but maybe we should be at times yelling, whoa, because he is so overwhelming. But what David's describing in this passage is not an unapproachable deity. If that's all we had, how would we even talk to God? But verse six and other places, but here it is in verse six. It says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help from his temple. He heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. All the power that's described in those verses is a power that David can dare to talk to. Let me ask you the question. I want to tease that out this way. Let me ask you a question and try and think of an answer. Um, Just everybody in your head, just uh, answer this question. Would you rather have a God who listens, or God who speaks? The reason I've been asking that question is because of a book I read this week. It's a a book by a guy named um, Daniel Nayeri. It's called Everything Sad is Untrue. It's, It's written in novel form, but it is the story of his life. And what's unique about it is he tells the story from the point of view of his 12 year old self. And so he's, uh, he's standing in front of his class doing projects for Mrs. Miller and telling stories about him and his family. His 12-year-old self is an Iranian refugee kid in Oklahoma who had to flee Iran because his mother and his sister became Christians and there was a death sentence that was placed on them. His dad remained Muslim, divorced his wife, remains behind, and so now they've gone from her being a successful doctor and very rich to being very poor in a trailer park in Oklahoma because of her faith in Christ. And just as he's describing that, that respect that he has for his mother and the power of the, that story, he interrupts himself and he says this, Dear reader, this is a good place in the story to hold our breath and ask a question. Would you rather have a God who listens or a God who speaks? Be careful with the answer. It's important enough to save your life. And everybody's got an answer. A God who listens is like your best friend who lets you tell him about all the people you don't like. A God who speaks is like your best teacher who tells Brandon that he has to leave the room if he's going to call people falafel monkeys. A God who listens is your mom who lets you sit in the kitchen and tell her stories about castles in the mountains. A God who speaks is your dad who calls on the phone from Iran with advice for your life in America. 
There are gods all over the world who just want you to express yourself. Look inside and find whatever you think you are, and that's all it takes to be good. And then there are gods who are so alien to us with minds so clear, the only thing to do would be to sit at their feet and wait for them to speak and tell us what is good. A God who listens is love. A God who speaks is law. At their worst, the people who want a God who listens are self-centered. They just want to live in the land of do as you please. And the ones who want a God who speaks are cruel. They just want laws and justice to crush everything. I don't have an answer for you. This is the kind of thing that you live your whole life thinking about probably. Love is empty without justice. Justice is cruel without love. And sometimes you get neither. Oh, and in case it wasn't obvious, the answer is both. God should be both. If a God isn't, that is no God. I love that. All justice, I mean, all all love, no justice, just humors you. All justice, no love, just condemns you. The God of the Bible isn't just a God who thunders from the clouds, and he isn't just a God who likes warm hugs. He's a God who listens, and he's a God who speaks. He's a God of love so that we can come as we are, but he's also a God of justice, and he will make things right. We see both of these in these verses, right? That's worth every ounce of our attention, guys. That's worth every ounce of our allegiance. Secondly, uh, looking back at the battle, David teaches us that our righteousness is worth every ounce of our effort. And before I get to that, we have to address that David's got some things to say about his own righteousness, and they're probably shocking to us, I'm going to guess. I think this was the section of Scripture that Cynthia read where it says in verse 20, the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. Verse 24, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. And then in between, he says things like, my heart is pure, uh, my hands are clean, I've followed faithfully. I'm guessing that most of us would feel pretty uncomfortable using these phrases in our own quiet times, in our own prayers, right? We're a little skeptical of the whole thing. We know that David had some issues, right? We, we know David's story, Folks, do you really want to be defined by your holiness resume? I remember after a particularly grueling seminary exam, it was a four, I'm sitting, in, it's, it's four hours of just writing my, I'm just, I went through two or three pens on this thing, and finally at the top of the exam, just before I turned it in, I just wrote at the top, I'm not asking for justice, I'm asking for mercy. I knew what I was turning in needed work, right? I knew that it wasn't enough. And so that's, why it's shocking when we read David saying officially, you know, in, in, in essence, he's saying, go ahead and grade me. I think you'll find that I did pretty well on this test. I've done what it takes to earn your favor, God, to earn your rescue. Now, that's not what David is saying here. I, I'm going to address that in a minute. That's definitely not what he's saying, but it feels like that, doesn't it? But before we kind of cast stones at David and say, wow, that's, he's really full of himself, I want to suggest that although it would probably not come out of our lips because we've been around the church long enough to know how to sound humble, that there are ways in which our attitudes underneath do this exact same thing. God, you owe me. Look at how good I've been. Maybe if we're attentive to our internal monologue, we would discover it whispering and advocating for our moral goodness and saying things like, Lord, I've done it right and you owe me, God. I was talking recently to someone uh, not in this church who was going through a financial crisis and they were pretty mad at God because their pastor had told them 
that as long as you just continue to tithe faithfully, nothing financially bad will ever happen to you. I have done it right, Lord. You owe me financial stability. Or maybe you have lived a, uh, maybe a, a, a rigorous, healthy lifestyle. So you, you shouldn't have any health problems, right? Why would the Lord allow that to happen to you? I remember um, a moment of weakness in my early 30s when I was still single, and I remember talking to one of my mentors in just a, a moment of frustration and, and anger, and I said, you know, I am trying to live as a single, a life of integrity, and I feel like the Lord is rewarding me with a life of singleness. I was so frustrated with, and discouraged, and it was spoken out of an attitude of earning. Look at the way I live, God. You owe me something good. So I think we need to be honest about that attitude and watch when it creeps up. But then we, we need to say that that's not what David is doing here. That's not what he's saying. In fact, we've actually talked about this tension already when we looked. Um, Tim, uh, no, soon showed us uh, Psalm 14 where it says, no one is righteous, not even one. And then the very next week, we looked at Psalm 15, where it says, hey, remember, Tim led us through this. Like, how do you get invited to God's table? Uh, well, he who has pure hands and a clean heart. That tension between, I mean, you can't interpret 14 without 15 or 15 without 14. We need those together. The Bible holds both of those things together in Scripture, and there they are, back to back, saying, you are not good enough, and oh, by the way, to be with God, you have to be good enough. We know as Christians that that tension, spoiler alert, is solved in the cross of Christ, right? That we deserve a separation from God. And Jesus is the only person who can say these things in this passage about living perfectly. Reward me according to my righteousness. Who can say that except Jesus? But here's the beauty of it. When you trust in him by faith, he says those things for your account. He says those things on our behalf. He says those things that are true of him as if now they are true of you. What David's talking about here is not earning God's goodness, but living God's goodness. It's, not, um, it's something that we've said here many times, um, but I think it bears repeating. It's this simply, that the gospel is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort. You can't earn your salvation but that doesn't mean that we just coast, right? You can't earn your salvation, but we are called to live the implications of Christ's kingship in our lives into every area of our lives. When we talk here about captivating grace, we don't just mean that grace kind of wows you. We mean that grace changes you. Grace creeps into this place of like joyous obedience. It constrains us to obey. It's wonderfully freeing for us to live the way that we were meant to. We're not called to just coast on grace. We're called to live in the righteousness that, that God has declared for us in Christ. There's a, a great verse that um, Paul in Philippians 3, he says, let us live up to what we've already attained. What have you attained? You've been declared holy, perfect, righteous. You have heaven in your future. Live into that. David's not talking about earning. He's talking about effort. He's saying, God, I love you so much that I make every effort to follow you every effort to praise you, and so I will live for you if my finances and my health and my, my relationships are good, and I'll live for you if they're not. Whatever the, whether they're stable or unstable, I'll live for you. David is not claiming sinlessness. He's not claiming perfection. He's just claiming steadfastness. It says, I'm, I'm aligning my life to your grace, God. 
I'm in pursuit of you. Guys, your obedience is worth every ounce of your effort. Um, because when you pursue the heart of God, you're growing in Christ-likeness. And when you're growing in Christ-likeness, you're living for what you were made for. I think it's, it's, no, it's a no-brainer here. There's, this is not profound just to say that things work best when they're doing what they were made for. That's true of your refrigerator and your microwave and your soul, right? That it works best when it's doing what it was made for. And we have to remember that as we love the, the people around us, that that's true of them too. So loving people in the broadest, biggest, most generous, loving sense is recognizing that their lives will function best when they're living what they were made for and they need to know Jesus. They were made for a relationship with God. They were made for life in Christ. That's, we were made the image of God and we work best when we live that out. Because there are only a few things in this world that are eternal. Only a few things in this world that, that last forever. I, it's a very short list. I've shared it with you before. I think there's five things on it. I think that's it. If you can think of anything else on it, let me know. God, his word, his kingdom, the souls of men and women, and then we forget this last one too often. The things that make us more like Christ. When you are investing in things like the fruit of the spirit, the, when you're investing in growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and, and all of those things, then you are living into becoming more and more what one day you will perfectly be. So that's worth every ounce. Nothing in that journey is wasted. No step on that path is in vain. You're growing into the full image of your Savior. You're learning better how to reflect him in the moment now until one day you will reflect him fully. You're growing into it. I heard it described as like a, it's like a big coat that doesn't quite fit you now, but by, by God's grace, you're, you're gonna grow into it. Every day, you're growing into it. That pursuit is worth your effort. I hope it makes sense. Those two points that I've just mentioned are really one point, right? Um, if, if God is worth every ounce of your attention, then following him is worth every ounce of your effort. Do we agree with that? Amen. One more thought, though, before we, before we end, um, and that's this, that our battle is equipped every moment of our lives. Verse 28, and it's, it, go, it keeps going from there, but let me just read a couple verses here. It says, uh, You, Lord, keep my lamp burning, my God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. I just want you guys from now on to read it that way. You have to read it, and then you lunge, okay, when you, as you read it. So. And then from there, he talks about shields and uh, steady feet and a bending a bow of bronze. I, I, it feels there's, there's this military imagery here that David's giving us. It feels to me like rotations at boot camp, right? Like, I mean, here, here's my running station and here's my archery station and here's my, I'm gonna vault a wall station and just all these things that we're working as we train ourselves in, in godliness. But notice, what I want you to notice about all of it as it's described is that it's all, as David describes it, present tense imagery. And yet, this is the end of David's life looking back. His battles are done. He's not fighting anymore. And yet he's describing all these things in the present tense. He says, Lord, you're, you're still doing this. All my enemies are defeated, but you're still showing up. These capacities are not just stories of past victories. They're my capacities today. You're with me today. You're just as present now as you were then. 
That's why I asked you to think about a battle in your life that you could look back on and you could kind of see it as a completed, closed chapter in your life. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end to it. You can see and reflect on how God showed up. Can I, I don't know if I'm allowed to give homework assignments or not, but I'm gonna give one, okay? So I, th- I think this would be a helpful exercise this week. Think about that moment, whatever that thing is that you're thinking about, that season of your life, and spend some time this week reflecting on it and maybe even writing. What did I learn from that? Lord, how did you show up? What did I learn about faith? What did I learn about my Savior through that? Maybe journal about it. Maybe just go David on it and write a psalm. Or just write a song about it, right? To reflect on, remember that the, the, the ability to have perspective on a past event gives us a, a whole lot of understanding, deeper understanding of what the Lord was up to. Lord, remember that time in my life when, and then just insert your story there. Here's what you did. Here's what I learned about you and me and faith and trust and all the rest. I would just encourage you. I hope that some of you will do that this week, just to to reflect on that, maybe even in writing, to ponder the Lord's goodness in that season of your life. Here's why I want you to do that. Now, like David, bring that and those lessons and that reality into the present, into your, your current struggles, your current battles. God is just as present now as he was then. He's not just a past victory. He's a present reality. And that's true also of our armor. You know, we see all this military imagery in this passage, and we go, wow, that's, I don't quite get it. But, but um, we, we get it because we have military imagery as well. It's Ephesians 6. We talk all the time about the armor of God, right? Let me put it up here. Uh, Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand, stand firm then. And then he goes on to describe, he grabs all of these images from a, a, a Russian, sorry, a, a Russian, sorry, a, a Roman soldier's outfit. And uh, he, 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 you're familiar with these images maybe, a, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the readiness of the gospel, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the word of God. All those images there, right? So here's the thing though. Like David's armor, yours is present tense and it doesn't come from you. It's, not, it, it's called the armor of God for a reason. It's not the armor of you. And the reason I mention that is because I know that most of us here have probably heard it taught and maybe some of us have even taught it that there's got to be this daily regimen or liturgy or mantra where you kind of you, you think about each of these things as you put them on. And if you don't do it every morning, you might be leaving yourselves open to an arrow, the attack of an enemy. What I want to suggest to you guys is just to think about it a little differently. You can still use your morning regimen if you want to, but when you think about it this way, you're already wearing the armor of God. You went to bed in it last night. You slept in it. You woke up in it this morning. It's yours you don't face the day saying, look at me, I put on my armor this morning and now I am, I am true, righteous, faithful and ready for the day. That's, that's not how we approach it. The belt of truth ain't your truth. <laughs> Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. It's not your righteousness. It's his righteousness. Even the shield of faith, we read in Ephesians 2, like even your faith is a gift from God. It's his salvation, it's his spirit, it's his gospel. And so putting on the armor of God is really just as simple as putting on Christ. And church, by faith, 
you are already clothed in his righteousness. You already are. I'm not making this stuff up, or at least somebody else is making it up with me. Here's Brian Chappell on this. He says, We take our stand against the devil's schemes and stand our ground not primarily by more vigorous performance of good deeds or by greater exercise of our willpower and resolve, but through confidence in God's provision. Our armor is faith in what God has already provided for us. Guys, you stand today clothed in everything that you need. God already put the armor in place. Your job is to daily remind yourself of that reality. What I'm saying is your job is to preach the gospel to yourself. And if that's part of your regimen every morning, then beautiful to remind yourself of what you are already clothed in. When you leave the house, you didn't leave any of it behind. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so instead we say, Jesus, this morning, you're my truth, you're my righteousness, you're my salvation. May your word be active and living like a sword in my life. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom come in me as it is in heaven. We're gonna sing those words in just a moment. Um, this is a, actually a new song. This, this new, it's so new that I think the ink isn't even wet on this. It just got released, right? So the ink, the ink isn't even dry on it. That's what I meant to say. Um, but it is the Lord's Prayer, so it's, that's been around for a while. Uh, it's a new song, though, that before we sing, well, let's pray together and ask the Lord to meet us in it. Lord, you live, David reminds us, you live. Praise be to our rock. Exalted be God our Savior. We will praise you, Lord, among the nations. We will sing the praises of your name. You give great victory and unfailing love to your children, past and present, until the day, Lord, when we will be looking back from the summit and we will see it all make sense and we will see the final victory. Until that day, Lord, clothe us in the gospel. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth and in Charlotte and in our families and in our hearts, in us as it is in heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.